condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Hi, uh, <clears throat> yes, so, yes, here we are. This is Neil Bradley, and with me as usual is Joe Quinn. Hi there. And you're listening to another episode of Behind the Headlines on the all-new SOP radio network. We are, we hope everyone can hear us okay on the, the new format. And they can. Okay, good. <laughs> so this week we're going to be looking at something that's been um, something I've been looking into for the last few weeks or so. Obviously, with um, the European so-called European refugee crisis, uh, it is indeed a crisis in Europe. Uh. A lot of people are pretty hysterical about what's going on. I mean, it's not just in Europe. It's having an effect on people across the West primarily that we can see. It's um, it's the worst nightmare come true, in a sense. The nightmare they've been telling us about for the last 15 years of a, quote, Muslim invasion of Europe and the West, and the end of all things white and wonderful. They never say it like that, but that's kind of implied that um, the threat out there, the Muslims, uh, which we've heard nonstop in some form or another since 9-11, and arguably a decade before that, has now produced facts, uh, visible signs on the ground that uh, certain demagogues in the West can say, see, didn't we tell you this was going to happen? Of course, uh, as we've described on many other shows, not least yesterday on the truth, per- truth perspective, the current crisis is utterly contrived in so many ways. Certainly there are many, a million or so new arrivals in Europe. But it's contrived, not least in the, in the sense that there are a million people fleeing at least a large chunk of them are fleeing bombs raining their, on their heads, courtesy of precisely those same white European Christian civilized values that are apparently under threat, hence the need to bomb all those non-white Europeans out there. Um, but there's a lot more to this than just the kind of polemic surrounding whether one falls into being pro or anti-refugee or immigrant, whatever you want to call them. Because something we've noticed creeping up a lot is, and it, there were, this, this, was, this was pre-refugee crisis. Over, over the last 15 years, it started out with a minority 
and it's becoming very prevalent. I, I see it a lot on forums, on commentary under articles and news and so on. And it's like there's this meme going on out there where there's been a complete revision of history, turning it on its head pretty much, where to explain what's happening now, it's important to certain types of people to explain that twas always so. The threat, namely that the threat has always been, always been Muslims coming to our homeland, which is a phenomenal exercise in mental gymnastics, but it, and it's taken hold in a big way. Um, the, the obvious historical throwback we're referring to here is the, the medieval period. So the Crusades, the Moors in Spain, and the, these... This time period is indeed cited by those who would um, spout on and on, citing lots of facts and quotes to, to explain and justify their, their position that Muslims are not just a problem now, they are inherently a problem. That is, there is something hardwired, genetic, socio-biologically wrong with Muslims, and there always has been and then to prove their case, they then pull up history and say, see, see, here, 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 and here, and here. And it's not even wrong. It's so completely wrong that um, we're just going to look at it quickly today and hopefully correct some of the BS. So on that point, um, I think something, something that might help set a, some context here is that... Uh, History, as far as we know, is more or less can more or less be arranged into fairly discrete chunks of about six to eight hundred years. That's certainly a pattern that can be taken back through this era we're in, the modern era, the Middle Ages, the Greco-Roman era, and then the Bronze Age. Um, that's not my suggestion. Laura has suggested that before. She, she's not certain of it either, of course. There are, I mean, many historians will argue, well, there's sort of a pattern. Sometimes the cycle is a bit different, yada, yada. But you can more or less take what we know, the history we know, and arrange it into chunks of about 700 years average. So we're in one era now. The preceding one before that is the one I want to look at a bit today. Um... The key point, and I'll say it straight out, is that Europe, especially Northwestern Europe, the Benelux countries, France, Germany, Denmark, these are what we call them today, and I suppose the United Kingdom, was a human wasteland from about the mid-6th century through to around 200 AD, maybe a bit less than that, but there was certainly a significant period of time where multiple generations were basically wiped out. They were, they, we think they were wiped out in one fell swoop, although it was probably a series of catastrophic events. There is now a lot of evidence from people who have no expertise or even 
keen interest in in human history. They are geologists. They are paleontologists. They are um, people who count tree rings for a living. Who are interested in in rocks and ice cores and so on. And and there is a lot of evidence to suggest. They all come out of from different angles, and they say something catastrophic happened in Western Europe around five sixty five seventy and in any event uh, it seems to it's it fits with what was known from based on historical text textual evidence and archaeological evidence that this time period was a dark age for for Western Europe in particular um why is that important? Because in the historical revisionism today, it's very important for demagogues to be able to say that any Muslim interaction, I mean Muslim like a thousand plus years ago, interaction with Europe was aggressive in nature. It was violent. It was, they were wars of conquest. They were wars of occupation. And anyone today can relate to those terms because when we see wars of conquest and occupation, thanks to the United States primarily and sister country Britain, we have very clear-cut evidence. We, we see what it means to invade and occupy a country. And when we're told then that this took place a thousand years ago, we, we assume it was more or less in the same form, obviously with different technological means, but uh, we can project backwards who the good guys and who are the bad guys. So it's actually extremely different. Um, because it was a human wasteland in, in Western Europe, there was no people to conquer, pretty much. There was no people to occupy. There were no cities to occupy maybe some ruins of old cities, but um, there's an it, what, I would, what I'm getting at here is that a fundamentally different process of, in quotes, invading and occupying took place back then. And this is important because it's, in, it's such a contrast to today where um, the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis Iraq, for example, the Americans could not claim, well, there was nobody there, so we just thought we'd go in and, you know, change the decor. No, of course not. There was something there, there's something they wanted, and they went and took it. Um, in complete contrast, when Muslims came to Europe, over a period, they were there really for the entire preceding era, that block of six or eight hundred years. And it wasn't until the beginning of the current modern era that uh, they were finally uh, kicked out of Spain. Um, some of the stuff that they achieved in Spain, techn technology-wise, um, in terms of arts, in terms of architecture, um, sewage systems, um, metalwork, craftwork, literature, um, advances in mathematics and so on, uh, astronomy, poetry, you name it. Some of these things would not be at least matched in Europe 
and then overtaken until the 19th century. Almost a thousand years after the pinnacle of um, Muslim civilization in Spain. So, uh, Yeah. Uh, what? <clears throat> uh, I think I need a question for where to take this next. Um, well, just on what you were saying there, the um, I think the, the the important point that most people aren't aware of, and there's a good documentary on this. It's called the. Uh, it's called When the Moors Ruled Europe, and it's surprisingly, it's a documentary by the BBC, of all things. Of course, they uh, basically, in that documentary, they explain uh, the influence of the Moors, that is, in North, mainly North African, but that's right across North Africa, right over from, you know, from Egypt, and probably with, with influences and people coming also from the, the modern-day Middle East. Um, there was this effectively, and I'm going to use this scary term that everybody's, uh, that's, that's used quite often today uh, in a negative context, it's called the, the uh, it was the caliphate, uh, a major part of Spain, probably about three quarters of the landmass of Spain for um, a good f at least you know, five, six hundred years, it was called the caliphate of Cordoba, um, but more or less all of Spain was under uh, Moorish, i.e. that is Muslim, rule from about 700 AD until about um, until about uh, 11 or 1200 AD, um, and the 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 important point here, yeah, as as Neil mentioned earlier, the um, the reason that the Moors were able to come into Spain from the Mediterranean, effectively from North Africa and the Mediterranean into Spain, and not just into Spain, they actually extended up into uh, southern France, uh, as far as uh, kind of Toulouse and even a bit further than the Toulouse area. The reason they were able to was because, as Neil mentioned, there is significant uh, evidence to suggest that uh, around, uh, around 540, 550 AD time, just about 150 years or so before the Moors were well established in Spain, most of Western Europe was uh, kind of destroyed or devastated by uh, probably by a, a meteorite or a, a cometary, comet fragment impact. That, um, of course, after the the excesses and the heyday of of the Roman Empire up until around that time. I mean, there's this official story that the Roman Empire was the Roman Empire fell apart. But of course, how it, how and why it fell apart, uh, the the re real story is is not really recorded in history, except when you look at uh, tree ring growth and, and different archaeological evidence. That, for what I just said, was that the thing that um, the event that signed the or signed the death knell for the Roman Empire was probably a meteorite or comet impact. Of course, the Roman Empire had been kind of um, to a certain extent that falling apart um, from within because of corruption for similar reasons why uh, we see uh, Western society today falling apart because of massive corruption and decadence among the leaders but certainly there's no reason to think that the fall of the Roman Empire would have caused this, this is what is called the Dark Ages 
in Europe, which is from around that time, around 550, 600 AD until for the next uh, five or 600 years. And they call it the Dark Ages, despite the fact that particularly in the southern in southern Europe, and we're talking about Spain here and in the southern France, uh, from 700 AD uh, on, there was no Dark Ages there. And in fact, uh, civilization was effectively restored. We're talking here maybe 100, 150 years after uh, this destruction from from meteorites of Western Europe, uh, 150 years after that, civilization was effectively brought back to uh, Western Europe uh, by the Moors, and they didn't spread all over Europe. Um, maybe they didn't go as far further up into France and Germany because well, maybe there wasn't enough of them. They didn't need to go that far, but certainly they reestablished civilization and all the things that um, Neil mentioned in Spain. And what they call it, they call it a caliphate, the caliphate of Cordoba. This, this term caliphate is associated today with ISIS, but of course it's nothing scary at all. It's simply just a term for, uh, in the Muslim world, for a kind of like a a state, a semi-state kind of infrastructure. So, but the interesting thing is that they did not actually, in in about eleven or twelve hundred AD, when the Moors had effectively, you know, re-civilized, uh, or uh, their certainly Spain and uh, and the influence then into other parts of Europe once that had happened um, and the Westerners the indigenous people of of Western Europe kind of got back on their feet effectively and uh, you had uh, the, the myth effectively in Spain that exists today of the reconquest or reconquista, reconquista as they call it in Spain of, uh, of Spain from the Moors and there's um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen the movie there's a movie called El Cid with I think it's Charlton Heston plays mm-hmm. El Cid and he's this uh, glorious con- uh, reconqueror for the Catholic kings of Spain who take back uh, Spain from the from the Moorish uh, barbarians etc. Yeah, it's very yeah. much very much uh, um, <clears throat> propagandized, but that that didn't actually happen. The reality of that situation was that uh, the Moors there was very little in, in the way of a reconquest of Spain. The Moors effectively just simply well obviously they had integrated to a large extent, but a lot of them um, uh, they, they kind of just Largely integrated, some of them certainly went back, but there was no battle for the reconquest of Spain. The the, the indigenous white Spaniards simply kind of um, you know took power again with uh, with the you know um, well with 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 the re- resurgence effectively of of them establishing of the 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 kind of structures of, of white Western uh, structures again. They basically retook it, and there were some battles here and there, but certainly. There was no reconquest, as, as is described in or portrayed in movies like El Cid. And uh, well, in this superb documentary, when the when the Moors ruled Europe, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's really just about Andalusia, Spain, um, which is which is all they ruled. Um, they explain that the return of to of Spain to being a Christian white <coughs> European country was a process. That was, in fact, a civil war. It was not Christians rising up against their Muslim overlords or anything like that. Um, Mm -hmm. For hundreds of years in Spain, Muslims and Jews and Christians lived peaceably. Mm -hmm. It was an integrated, multi-ethnic society, multi-religious and so on. Um, So it it was the process going on there was, in fact, a civil war, and it's interesting that that came at a time of strife everywhere. That came at the end, primarily at the end of that era, which is typically what happens in this broad pattern. It typically happens everywhere. So where 
But this in the context of today, we're at the end of this era. This era roughly began with the Black Death, 1350 onwards, which broke out, the plague broke out everywhere. They tried to, to show that it was a linear, followed a linear pattern from China all the way to the Crimea and then into Europe by Genoa in the middle of the 14th century. But in fact, there's very little evidence that can show that it happened in any linear pattern because within years it was everywhere. So um, as Laura's work and, and we've been suggesting in, in other venues over the years, uh, it seems that global cataclysms happen that mark, there's a build-up, of course, and then there's a really bad period, and then there's a renaissance. And there's a renaissance globally. You'll find that dynasties, although they do overlap, of course, depending on the geography and where you are, you can more or less say that there are discrete periods where things happen on a global scale. So, yes, it was actually a civil war that ended, in quote, Muslim rule over Spain, um, in the 14th century, after which it was a completely transformed. It was it, it was transformed in terms of a regime change mm. because the very last battle that finished any formal Muslim um, Islamic state in Spain and thus in Europe was 1492. This is, of course, the famous year when the Spanish, the new regime of Spain became the empire and conquered the Americas. And from then on, you've got, that's the modern era, if you like, that we've been in now of Western civilization and therefore global civilization because they conquered the Americas. And from one Western European empire to the next, Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, British, and then American, which is, I'm considering European really in its roots, um, that is the modern era. That's, that's Western civilization. But so you might say, well, so what? So before in one era, it was the Muslims had their turn. And now we, in quotes, are having our turn. Well, it's more than that because there are qualitative differences between the eras. Um, Joe mentioned that they didn't take over all Europe. So how then can the title of our show be... Um, the Islamic origins of Western civilization if it was just Spain. Well, geographically, it was just Spain. One of the big things that um, supported the foundational points of Islamic world while Europe was in the Dark Ages from the 6th century and it was thriving, education and knowledge were clearly um, pushed in a big, big way, and it, it undergirded everything about um, the spread of Islam. Mm -hmm. Well, they stopped. It has a reputation for being spread by the sword, but actually, there was a thirst from other pockets, not least northwestern Europe. Yeah, they wanted the knowledge from them, and well, there was. I mean, you had with this with this commentary impact, uh, most likely commentary or fragment or meteorite impact in, in the five forty AD that uh, kind of put uh, put a put pay to the to the Roman Empire, and it must have been a fairly devastating um, event that really did knock Europe back to the Stone Age, at least Western Europe you had, uh, but further east in the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, whatever, uh, which is modern-day Middle East, and Iran, yeah. Persia, and all that kind of stuff, they were re left relatively uh, unharmed, let's say, or, or not harmed at all, and, and North Africa, and uh, so it was natural that, <clears throat> you know, 
as as people have explored throughout history, they kind of like move uh, for when for a hundred years, you know, you have, you're sending your ships out and you see nothing in Spain and nothing in Europe, you hear nothing from it. It will eventually kind of start to move in there, and effectively, effectively these. Uh, these North African Muslims and, and even Middle Eastern Muslims did a lot, uh, like we've been saying, to restore uh, all of the different uh, arts and uh, sciences to to Spain and by implication then to Europe uh, after this event. And um, it, the, they set up many, obviously, centres of learning, universities, Salamanca University is one example. And the, and the other, it seems that the other, most likely, and it comes down to us in a kind of a myth uh, about uh, Ireland and Irish monks around that time of the Dark Ages, that Ireland uh, got this term, this name, the, the the land of saints and scholars, and that comes from uh, this. So we're talking, you know, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, Irish monks who, and the theory is or the idea is that Ireland was not impacted by this. It was a kind of like a a, a localized area that was not affected. Uh, so there was there's. Over those years, and it, it continues to this day, there's a strong kind of academic um, link, particularly with religious universities and stuff, between Ireland and Spain. So you had the kind of meeting up of these Irish monks coming out into Western Europe that had been devastated by this uh, this uh, disaster, this cometary or meteorite disaster. They're coming down into into France and uh, into Europe and going, holy shit, you know, this place is wrecked. And then they but they come down into Spain and they hook up with the kind of Muslims and, and they... They kind of establish uh, centers of learning, and they go around spreading. And this is the idea of Irish monks going around spreading uh, learning and knowledge mm -hmm. and yeah. etc. Um, of course, they supposedly spread the ideas of Christianity as well, but that's a whole other uh, topic. But the um, one of the interesting things about the supposed reconquest, when the Catholic kings came back, uh, got came back to power uh, about eleven, twelve hundred AD or so, and supposedly kicked out the Muslims. Uh, they when when they they wanted to effectively kind of Christianize or Spanishize um, Spain again. So they realized that, that there were about 700 years of, of Moorish what, conquest of, of Spain. A point of order, and this is an important one, you mentioned come back, re-Christianize, etc. Hmm. Et to bring it back to the old state, here's well, the thing, Joe, there was no old Christian state. Well, they wanted to Christianize it, but yes, what I mean, it was a new, it was a new ideology at the time. Well, Christianity had been around obviously under Constantine and stuff as part of the, it, the yes Empire. in the Rome. Now here's the thing, you see, and this is one of the tropes that's going around today. Well, we Europeans are superior. Why? Because we have ancient Greece and learning and knowledge. Sure, the Arabs then had astronomy and math, but they got it from us via yeah. Greece. Hold on a second. There's a thousand-year break between the, these two things. The ancient, the classics, only came into Northwestern Europe via the Muslims. The intelligentsia from all over Western Europe would go down to places like Toledo, which was like the center of learning for Europe at the time, in order to, to get this knowledge and it was all in Arabic, and it would be translated oh. into Latin. Yeah. In most cases, for the first time, I suspect, including the Bible. Well, but in any event, they were introduced to the classics. The Bible had been being developed, or you know, from kind of over the years prior to the fall of the Roman Empire and this commentary impact. The Bible was 
developed around that time and, you know, was spread to, to a certain extent to different people. So it was there in these pockets of survival, effectively, in Europe. So, uh, I mean, that's one of the things that the Irish monks supposedly spread back to Europe was Christianity, you know, from yeah. pre-540 AD. They spread it back around. But anyway, the, the point is that these uh, Catholic kings wanted to reassert themselves over uh, over Moorish, what had been Moorish Spain. And they, uh, as a way to do that, they used the kind of race card or wanted to establish it along a racial line. So what they did was that they they wanted to hand out land because they basically come in to, came into an awful lot of land as the kind of moors kind of left or integrated or whatever. They, 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 this new regime of, of the Catholic kings in Spain had um, a lot of land. They wanted to distribute land. So they said, okay, everybody line up and bring your papers with you and those that can show that they are from... Uh, pure Spanish or Western European lineage can have land, they'll get land first. Uh, so the result of, what, of that uh, process was that 90% of the land was held by 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. And you know what that means? An oligarchic elite. No. Why, why was 90% of the land held by 10% of the population? After this process? Well, this, they found as, a, as a result of the process, yes. that's what happened. They but, came along and said, we want to distribute the land to all of mm-hmm. the all of the true blood right. uh, Spanish. That's how few there were. Exactly. They well, couldn't find any, but i.e., the point is that for 700 years, when, when, when Moors were in Spain for 700 years, they had fully integrated. And, Absolutely. And, and you couldn't, for most of the population in most of Spain, you couldn't find any more than 10% of the population that did not have mixed yeah. uh, uh, blood. And if you go down to Spain today, uh, particularly uh, the southern half of Spain, and you look around, you will very easily realize, we very easily see that uh, yeah. these are not uh, pure-blood, white, Western uh, Europeans. Yeah. Well, you mentioned El Cid, the legendary yeah. leader it's of this reconquesting of Spain. Well, the latest historical research on such a person, if indeed he existed, is that he was very probably a Moor. Yeah, exactly. That's even worse, yeah. So, again, it's... it's it, <laughs> ideological cloaks were put on other motives at the time and then retrospectively rewrote the local history there to, to suit that time period. And it's had many, um, many favorable airings since then. So Franco in fascist Spain in the 1930s um, played this up in a big way as well. Oh, and uh, there were many, well, there were, there were always many festivals that, commemorated this Reconquistista, but uh, I think it got a real big um, shot in the arm under Franco. And to this day, they have parades and in, in towns and cities in Spain where they commemorate this uh, taking back, but it, there was no, it wasn't a taking back, it was t- taking over, it was a regime change of Spain. And uh, they're going down the streets and they're wearing... They're wearing what in other contexts people recognize as extreme right-wing costumes and setups. So those pointy hats the Ku Klux Klan people wear, you see that like in Spain in a big way. That's the Christian assertion of power. Um, it was, and, and, and really that was, <laughs> that was a throwback to the Dark Age, to um, uh, expression of, the expression and this, the, um, successful implementation of barbarism 
over something that would be reasonably called civilization. So proliferation of wealth and cities and people living peacefully. Um, so in, in that sense, was it a good thing for Spain that it became, not really, because from there it becomes an empire and uh, you have an entrenched status quo of an extremely wealthy elite and, uh, and impoverished masses. But, um, okay, so I think we've clarified on the point what, what I meant by, I just want to go into it a little bit more of the Islamic origins of Western civilization. So if specifically the injection of knowledge I had in mind. They, of course, they didn't go beyond Spain. They went a little into France. I think for the... Uh, I have a suggestion here from one um, historian, Janet Abu Lugod, who's um, an American academic. Her basic suggestion is that the, the Moors and therefore the greater Islamic world had no interest in going any further into Europe geographically. Nevertheless, many people from all over Europe had a lot of interest in coming to Spain. And like I've said before, some they saw texts for the first time, whether it's classic Greek texts. Um, uh, Pythagoras was reintroduced to Europe via Islamic uh, Arabic trans translations. Um, a lot of it came through Toledo, but Salamanca, there were other cities. Um, one city I want to give a mention to is Cordoba. Cordoba was at the peak of Moorish civilization in Spain. It was the largest city on earth. Possibly, well, not 100%, there could have been one city in China that was, was, was larger, but um, it really was a, a, a major center of, of power, well, not so much power, but of um, of civilization, of thriving, you know, of the signs of um, success, because you, you can't become the most popular city in the world by being a marauding horde of grabbers and takers. Speaking of which, I want to now share the perception that people in the Arabic world at that time had of the Western Europeans, because uh, I think it's a hell of a lot more accurate. So I want to quote a little from this book. I'm reading, I read a great book called Before European Hegemony, the world system from 1250 to 1350. So that's the last century, let's say, in the, the era before ours. So um, this is from Janet Abu Lugod, L-U-G-H-O-D. She writes, The relative levels of civilization in Europe and the Levant do suggest that the Crusaders were more akin to the barbarians who per periodically preyed on the settled wealth of high cultures than to carriers of the mission civilatrice, the civilizing mission. As Cipolla puts it, there is no doubt that from the fall of the Roman Empire to the beginning of the 13th century, Europe was an underdeveloped area in relation to the major centers of civilization at the time. Clearly a land of barbarians, he writes. Lewis uses this discrepancy to account for the asymmetrical interest East and West showed in each other. Although Europeans eagerly sought out Muslim lands and their wealth, namely the Crusade, which came at the end of, of, the, of this era, 
Let me just say this again. Although Europeans eagerly sought out Muslim lands and their wealth and, quote, copied many facets of Muslim culture, their interest was not reciprocated. Not only did the average upper-class Muslim feel superior to most Western Europeans, but the wide geographic lore of the Arabs never extended to Western Europe, an area they considered had little to offer. Even after the Crusades thrust a European threat into their heartland, Muslim attitudes remained condescending at best and aghast at worst, whereas their invaders were filled with a strange mixture of hatred and romantic, if reluctant, awe and admiration. In the 12th and 13th century, the literature in both societies reflected this asymmetry. The best summary of European views is by Sylvia Thrupp, who points out that chansons de gestes and romances that bring their heroes into contact with Muslims are the best clues to the views of the various Muslim peoples, prevailing among French nobles and probably among the upper bourgeoisie in the 12th and 13th centuries. The elements of the pattern are the cosmopolitanism of the world of Islam, its power and wealth, the splendor of its cities, the cleverness of its peoples. The Muslims are openly envied because they know even better than the French how to live. Such an exalted view of the enemy, however, was belied by the crusaders' behavior toward them, which evoked revulsion in their Muslim victims. Muslims saw the Franks, as Westerners were consistently referred to by the Arabs, as beasts superior in courage and fighting ardor, but in nothing else, just as animals are superior in strength and aggression. So, who were the barbarians? You know, the Crusades are interesting because the Crusades obviously came at the tail end of, of this period when, let's say, the Western Europeans had not only recovered sufficiently from the Dark Age wipeout, they were now in a position to begin to make inroads into their neighbors. Um, what attracted them was that if there was one pocket of Europe that did fairly well after the Dark Ages, it would have been Italy, which continued, its key cities, Venice and Genoa, Genoa continued to trade with the Eastern Mediterranean and therefore had regular contact with the Arab world. Um, and via these trade routes, the Crusaders launched attacks on cities in the Eastern Mediterranean. And it's astonishing because, like I've mentioned before, their, their civilizing mission was so poorly cloaked because, as they saw it, of course, they were going to take back Jerusalem for what? For Christianity. But they, they didn't... They had a very, very rugged idea of what Christianity was, <laughs> to say the least. Um, their knowledge of the world was so impoverished at this time that the initial Crusades... Were, were they were determined, as they saw it, they just needed to get Jerusalem, Jerusalem and a couple of other cities al along the eastern Mediterranean, and boom, voila. People there will be converted, and that's it. Everything will be fine, because they thought there were only a few other people outside Europe who just needed to be converted, and then everyone would be Christian. They didn't even know. They only learned once they got to the Middle East that there were these other worlds beyond the Middle East was vast. There was too many people for them to convert. It was too costly, and the whole project was insane. They only learned all these things um, after the fact. 
So that's the extent of the ignorance, I suppose, mm-hmm. that that under underlay the the whole Crusades project. Uh, the very last crusade attempt was funded by a French king, I think, the first Louis. Um, it was, it was a little bit. It was interesting because he had maybe a little bit more. Um, he seemed to have a little bit more awareness because what they went for was Cairo, and why did they want Cairo? Because they knew if they had Cairo, then they would have control of the Red Sea. They had already they had worked out by then by the end of the Sierra that if you control the Red Sea you could control the Indian Ocean in any event that effort failed also but the first em- the first western european empire in in our current era and the one that spread european dominance globally for the first time um was the portuguese and the portuguese circumnavigated around africa and captured the gulf of aden this way and from there, that was it. They basically controlled important sea trade routes in the Indian Ocean. Um, however, f- for the most part, the Crusades were um, ignorant, and I think the perception among people back then of what they were doing was, as I've just described, you know, aghast at, and, and in horror at these savages, mm-hmm. barbarians, and rightfully called such. Uh, I think that's the correct perception. And it just makes it richly ironic that today um, these people, people citing the Crusades, and not just, I mean, you, you've probably seen it, you know, people have their their avatar, uh, which they use on forums and uh, when they write comments on, on, on websites, their avatars often have some insignia or emblem of crusaders <laughs> i'm thinking it's, it's it does fit you because you're an ignorant grunt and the stuff you're saying is completely ignorant but you but i'm thinking to myself you believe that you're seeing a pattern in history where you are the crusader today defending white christian mm-hmm. european values blah 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 mm-hmm. when the and this was exactly the situation back then but it wasn't had nothing to do with reality. What it was, it was a projection of your internal insanity out onto the world. Well, I tend to think that the, while, the, while the Crusades have been uh, have been presented today as this kind of, you know, uh, taking back of some kind of a holy land or something from the Middle East that, that didn't really have any relevance to anybody in Western Europe. I mean, that was all just... Developed and formulated on the fly. As they went. Well, on the fly, yeah, as, yeah. They, as they went along, basically. It was just a narrative that they built up, and it was, and it certainly developed this idea of there being, of Christianity and the, the history of Jesus. That whole, the whole writing of the Bible was happening as they, um, as they were, as this, as this time period was progressing. You know, so you had the destruction of Western Europe, the fall of the Roman Empire, 540 AD, several hundred years go by, uh, nothing's happening in Europe because it's been destroyed. Uh, then eventually um, they start to kind of pick themselves up, pick themselves up out of, off the ground or out of the mud, and they they start to you know put together again this idea of a of of a Christian religion, you know, and and the, the I suppose it was linked to to some extent to the Roman uh, 
to the Roman Empire and and it being centered in in the Middle East and then the re, it eventually developed this idea of having to re, reconquer and take back Jerusalem for the West or whatever it's just completely insane just made up basically but I think that was all a narrative basically for these uh, Western powers to effectively uh, it was a land grab or it was an attempt to re-establish themselves as as powers as, as global or at least regional powers by uh, going out and uh, plundering and pillaging basically they had been they had been brought very low uh, by this event in 548 AD, and they needed to eventually, you know, re-establish themselves and, and get some loot, get some booty, basically, from other countries. And because of their innate uh, natures or whatever, they, um, you know, they, they they didn't do it in a very kind of cooperative kind of way or a, a way that or it was a shared trade. It was more or less uh, what we see today, which is, you know, imposing their will and stealing the resources of others. So it's all, it's all a, largely a, a made-up narrative, effectively, and that's closer to the truth of what happened. But the most important thing about this is about the idea of there being a a, a period in time like this when Muslims were uh, in Spain and in, in parts of Europe were uh, the seat of uh, education and learning and knowledge and science and arts and all that kind of thing, and that they effectively brought that back to a large extent to Europe uh the the fact that that is covered up is obviously one thing because you know history is rewritten to favor white westerners and they have the idea of the reconquest and blah blah blah, blah. but and they don't mention that so much um but that's just one aspect of the problem the other aspect of the problem is is the question as we've been discussing of why the moors from north africa were able to just walk into spain and take over because there's nobody to resist them. Why? Because there had been a, 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 a cometary or meteorite impact in Western Europe in 540 AD that destroyed it all. And the interesting thing about that is that um, that happened right at the apex or at the, at the pinnacle of the corruption of the Roman Empire. Uh, and today we have a situation where we have the new Roman Empire seated in uh, in America, Washington and London for example and extending into Europe that's the new Roman Empire and it has also reached the pinnacle of its corruption and so there's a repeating pattern here where major evil corrupt and it seems to be in recent history anyway, anyway kind of western uh, empires when they reach a certain intense level of corruption that there's some kind of cosmic disaster befalls them in some kind of directly related way with that corruption it's a cleaning of the slate effectively and it's interesting that uh, the last time it happened, it allowed for the Moors to come into Europe and, uh, and, and spread knowledge again and set things back on their feet to a certain extent. And uh, But this time we have, uh, at the pinnacle of the corruption of this empire, we have um, we already have the Muslim hordes supposedly threatening to, we have the propaganda talking about Muslim hordes uh, coming in and uh, threatening to uh, overtake. So it's almost... Uh, a recreation of the after, the after effect, the Crusades effect, the ideology of the Crusades of, of demonizing uh, people in the Middle East, Muslims, etc., in order to justify uh, imperial expansion. We have the same thing today, um, but it's not exactly a parallel, obviously, but the, the point is that um, when empires reach a pinnacle of corruption, reach an extreme level of corruption, that um, bad things happen. And we may find that uh, it may be the case that the same thing is going to happen again. And then um, if it's not a worldwide, worldwide 
a catastrophe, then, you know, um, in 100 years or 200 years, something like that, you may have uh, <clears throat> Muslims coming back into Western Europe and into America even uh, to re-establish civilization because it has been destroyed once again by the excesses of psychos in power, effectively, uh-huh. indirectly. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much of a pattern there is to that, though. There, there Obviously, there's, there's, there's the analogy you made between today and, let's say, the end of the last era, 700 years ago. But um, there's an extra element to this current era, to what's happening now. The Roman Empire, as corrupt as it was at, its ape- at the apex or the nadir of its corruption, as bad as it was, was not global no. in nature. Um, yeah. It didn't have global reach. No, well, that just means it's going to be worse this time. <laughs> That's what you've got to wonder. Like, <laughs> the impact is going to be even worse because... Um, okay, so... Rome falls, and that's the end of, say, that era. And then there's this 700-year period in, in, in the era between Rome and ours today. What's interesting about that one is that there is no one empire, not, not, even, the, not even the various Muslim caliphs, which took over quite quickly, too, all too quickly in the 7th century, were even that big or long-lasting or entrenched. Um, part, of, part of what's really interesting about this book, Before European Hegemony, um, and the description of the world system at that time, is that there's no global hegemon. We're so used today to there being a global hegemon that we kind of assume, well, there was always someone at least vying for it. But it, she's she's suggesting in this book that there is no there was no there's no um, comparative uh, there's no equivalent for its time no. that there is today. There was more or less a discrete boundary between worlds. So, say in Western Europe, in the Middle East, and then China and other Eastern civilizations. Um, something that's remarkable, and. She herself asked the question, and apparently it is a big issue for historians trying to understand it. It's a, it's, an, it's a bit of a mystery for them, is why on earth the Chinese in, in this preceding era did not take advantage. They did have at one point the technological and military and, uh, and the numbers, the sheer numbers. They were a really populous country back then too, to exert, if not total, certainly... Um, hegemonic global influence. They had massive fleets ready to go at one point in the 14th or 15th century and they pretty much overnight said, nah, go home. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, well, there's discussion, it was it went against their Confucian philosophy, they made a strategic decision not to, they realized they'd be risking an awful lot by going out and um, say, conquering or at least exerting dominance over the massive trade routes between China and therefore across India and all and the way into Europe. Well, when you're on to a good thing, why, do you, why would you bother? I mean, why would any, any particular one group of people, however, however large, but certainly contained within a certain geographic area that uh, has all everything that they need for their livelihood and it's, it's a big enough place and, I mean, the average person doesn't stray very far from home anyway except 
some particular type of uh, some people who are inclined to kind of be seafarers. Seafarers, they might like sailing and they sail a bit. But those are the people who effectively are the truck drivers of today, and they're, they're the ones who kind of are the, are the ones who drive, who are the pilot, are the captains of, of ships of of merchant ships and stuff. And they're a very small percentage of the population, and it was the same throughout history. The vast majority of ordinary people just want to stay at home where they were born because that's where they know, that's where they live, and they like to stay around in the local mm. community. They may go a bit further afield, but it gets tired walking after a while or on a horse, you know what I mean? I mean, you can't go very far. You're not going to do 3,000 miles or 5,000 miles on a horse, basically, just for the fun of it, you know what I mean? The average person, there, you've got your normal life, your normal family considerations. The vast majority of people stay where they are. So the idea that any uh, ordinary human beings would have a, an inclination to go and go off con- conquering around the world and overtaking vast tracts of the world and imposing their will on other people. It's just a totally unnatural and anti-human. But and, here's and that's the what people don't realise, is that what's happening today is completely unnatural yeah. for, for human beings. But then the reason, or the explanation for that is that these aren't human beings who are spearheading this. They're psychopaths. They're fundamentally not really human beings. So their ideology is anti-human, and they're the ones who are leading it. Yeah. And everybody else, all the subjects of empire who have supposedly benefited from empire, from empire uh, from the British Empire, the American Empire um, today, uh, none of them, very few of them go anywhere. They're not active participants in the empire except for the soldiers, but that's still a very tiny percentage of the population. So who's actually leading this kind of, uh, in the case of the US, who are the ones who really want, uh, who, who are really behind and think it's a really good idea that we go off around the world and conquer it all and spread everything all around the world? Sure, from an ego point of view, the average person living in America might think, yeah, it's nice that America spreads love, love and peace around the world, but that's the only way they can sell it to ordinary people is, is in terms of spreading freedom and democracy around the world because the idea of, you know, we're going around the world to conquer it. Is that okay with all the Americans? No, it's not. Um, I live in, like, you know, I live in the in the boondocks or in some town or city in, in the U.S. and I'm not interested. I, I don't even want to go there. I mean, 25% of Americans have passports. They don't even want to go. The average Americans don't want to go around the world conquering. They don't even want to go around the world seeing any of the rest of the world, the majority of them. So, I mean, the whole concept of conquering the world is just wrong. So the question of why China didn't do it is, is uh, it, it's kind of... Uh, it's kind of backwards in a sense. You should say, but yeah, obviously they didn't do it because they were probably there weren't so many psychopaths or there weren't psychopaths in positions of power. So they didn't do it for that reason because they were normal human beings. Uh-huh. The, question, the question should be not why didn't some group do it, but why is any group throughout history or why have the British and the Americans today done it for the past 300 years? Well, it's unnatural. The reason why it's a pertinent question for it is because there's only 50 years between the Chinese making a decision to take their fleets back from Malaysia and uh, the Indian Ocean. About 50 years between that and the Portuguese cracking the, the what have been a problem for East for traders in the Mediterranean to get around Africa, conquer Aden, and from there establish control over the entire, which they did. The Portuguese mm-hmm. controlled Indian Indian trade routes and beat the heck out of anyone who said, hang on a second, what are you doing? This isn't the way, way business is done here. Well, there are new rules, and she describes this in, this in this book. Out of nowhere, suddenly new rules were set at the outset of this era. Mm-hmm. And the Portuguese were the, the same pattern of coming into a place, slaughtering a, a, he, a heck of a lot of people, and then saying, you need to pay us a license fee for whatever you want to do, basically starting to establish economic and then military control mm-hmm. over people. It, it, it emerged quite suddenly, and then it was, boom, from there, it's in quick succession. If one follows the other, Portuguese, Spanish, mm-hmm. um, Dutch, English, 
eventually American, uh, French and German. Well, that's, that, that's the interesting thing right there, isn't it? That those, look at the countries I've just described to you. They're all from the periphery of Western Europe. Yeah. Well, the thing is... And it's, it's, as far as we can see, it's relegated, it's, it's relegated just to this era. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's happened, it's just kicked in straight after from the start of it, and here we are with the tail end of it today. Right. What I find um, most interesting and kind of shocking about uh, looking at the way history actually developed over the past 2,000 years is to compare the reality of, of the way it happened uh, and there being these kind of discrete periods and the way that the average person today, uh, particularly in Western in the Western world, sees Western history. They basically think that there's an unbroken history yeah. going back uh, to 2,000 years. The Roman the, Empire, the, Jesus... And uh, Jesus and the Roman Empire and everything, you know, the, the glories of the Roman Empire and all the wonderful things they did and built roads and colonized the whole world. And that, that basically now we in the West are the, the kind of outgrowing of the, 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 the result the of... The holders uh, of that torch. Yeah, the result of that un- unbroken line back to the Roman Empire, which is completely not a nonsense because the reality uh, of, of our history, uh, of Western history, is that... 2,000 years ago, yeah, you had the Roman Empire and you didn't have Jesus. You had no Christianity uh, until Christianity started to be developed out of basically nothing or a bunch of different stories and different people coming up with different ideas and they basically created the idea of Christianity in, you know, two, three, four, five hundred AD uh, until, and, and during that period you had an extremely, uh, or an increasingly corrupt and uh, abusive uh, Roman Empire in, in, the, in the area that to which it expanded or to the extent that it existed. And then you had the collapse of that Roman Empire largely as a result of a cometary impact in 540 AD. So that's the end of that period. Then you had Dark Ages, nothing. So, I mean, at the very least, you have to start start after those Dark Ages for modern Western uh, history. And you're talking then, but in that period of Dark Ages, you had... Muslims coming from the Muslim world, North Africa and the Middle East, coming into Southern Europe and re-establishing, helping to re-establish civilization. And eventually, Western Whitey gets his act together in the form of the kind of kings remaking themselves as, as Christian kings in Spain and France and, 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 and in European countries. And they eventually get themselves together, go and try and uh, pillage and plunder a bit to get some wealth and power to re-establish themselves as part of the Crusades in 1200 or so AD, then you have the Black Death comes along and more or less wipes everything out again and, and, and maybe not as bad as the 540 AD, yeah. but certainly knocks it back uh, on, on its ass, basically, uh, Western civilization. And um, and only after that then, I mean, you can jump forward a little bit, glossing over a few things, but you get to the point of um, of, of the British Empire, effectively, the British uh, being the primary ones, along with the ones you described. I mean, you have the Spanish and the, heading off to the New World and the, and the Portuguese and the Dutch and stuff. But around that same time, the British are are online and they're they're st- building their ships and sailing and warring with all sorts of... Oh, warring with everybody else in Europe, basically. That's what the first thing they do as soon as they get back on their feet after... Uh, you know, after the Crusades and after the, the Black Death, they start to fight with each other. European nations all fight with Europeans each other. Europeans seem to like fighting. Right. And then, so basically, really modern history starts with, modern Western history only goes back about, from now, about 500 years, four or 500 years maximum. That's our history. And it's a history of European countries fighting with each other uh, for two or 300 years. Uh, then the British eventually going, yeah, you know, let's go and enslave as many people as we can around the world with our fleet of, uh, of, of ships. So they sail all around the world and they enslave basically everybody and create their empire from about 1700 uh, onwards. 
uh, and then you know in the latter part of the, on the at the beginning of the 20th century the kind of um, the Americans more or less take over and they do what they've done for the past hundred years culminating in what we have today with them basically uh, running around the world invading and destroying and killing people uh, so yeah Western history is a history of about 400 years and it involves Western whiteies killing and slaughtering and plundering and colonizing everybody uh, that's it that's your history 400 years that's, if you're a white Westerner, that is your history. 400, that's all you've got to really lay any claim to, and it's a fairly ignoble history. It's, it's horrific. And, uh, <clears throat> well, yeah, there, there's not much more to said to that because there's very little redeeming qualities to it. I mean, uh, it's... Yeah, I was going to say, one of Thomas, Thomas C. in the chat room was asking something that's kind of related since we've been talking about the Roman Empire and 2,000 years ago, and he, he asked about um, he asked about Caesar and the prevailing, you know, official history version of what Caesar, or about Caesar, what Caesar was, and that it was, um, uh, it's official history that he slaughtered millions and was brutal. And if we have a second, could we talk about that? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of revisionist history about his, about Caesar as well. I mean, I know the dominant discourse is that he was this uh, evil, kind of somewhat evil or largely evil dictator in the... Uh, in the Rome, mo- Rome in the went from of, a republic to an empire. Right. It, he started off the basically the, the, the evil era of, of, of Rome in yeah. terms of it being an, uh, an empire. and um, Whereas, in fact... The processes were already underway. Rome was going evil, and he was well, one, no. one counterbalancing opportunity for it. Well, the question, the point is that the there's way. nothing wrong. It's this myth that that the idea of of, uh, of an empire, or uh, well, we would kind of agree, but the idea of a dictator or a supreme ruler of any country or uh, region or whatever is a bad thing. It it obviously isn't. It depends on who it is. The problem is that for most of history, people who have been supreme rulers of, of countries have, well, not all of them, but a lot of them have been kind of evil and they've taken power, has corrupted them. In the case of Caesar, he was, uh, if you read enough about his life and his, his, his story, he was not an evil person. He was a very good person. He, uh, he espoused compassion for your enemies and basically wanted to create a wonderful uh, society for all people living under the Roman Empire. Um, and he tried, and the only way he realized the only way he could do that was by assuming uh, as much absolute power as he possibly could, because he he was the guy of the moment. He was able to do it, and he realized it. And uh, he realized there were people out there, people around him who wanted to stop him doing that. So he had to, you know, stop them from stopping him from doing what he wanted to do, which was in his heart uh, the idea of uh, everybody living in a, effect, effectively in, uh, in peace with each other. Um, so. While it's to a certain extent true, true that he wanted to, uh, that he created a, a kind of, he wanted to be a dictator effectively, but not in the way that it's understood today. Um, he he wanted to do something good with that power, and because he wanted to do something good with that power, he was he was assassinated by his peers, who then said, "Okay, well now he's gone. Let's carry on with his idea of an empire and dictators, but we'll all be super evil instead of being trying to uh, help people to live in peace." And of course, uh, leading up to that point in, in Caesar's 
life up until he was assassinated, a lot of the things before that, his conquests in Gaul and Spain and other places, um, they were, most of those were, well, all of them were pretty much justified in terms of, um, uh, in terms of a, a kind of Pax Romana, effectively, uh, of spreading peace around the, I mean, Rome offered a lot to a lot of people. There were people who, like, you know, all of the civilizational and, and um, kind of scientific developments that, that, that Rome came up with, and that was certainly good for the progress of civilization. But when they attempted to kind of spread it around to other people effectively and establish a kind of order, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, they met with, met with a lot of resistance. And if, you're going, if, you're, if you meet with uh, armed resistance in that sense, uh, well, you have a choice. You either back down and just go home or you, or you fight. And yeah, Caesar and his, and his legions uh, killed a lot of people, but, and a lot of them were killed. They engaged in a lot of war, etc. But, you know, uh, you have to understand it in the context of the times. It wasn't, um, you know, killing and death isn't... Uh, in the context of, of of that era and of war and, you know, it's not something that uh, is necessarily frowned upon or something that you have to take a moral judgment on. It's what happens when two armies get together, people are going to be killed. And you can't come along and judge anybody for that. I mean, you have to look at the context of it and what was being intended by each side. So it's a bit complicated, but the point being, uh, Caesar had good intentions and the way he's been presented and portrayed in in, in, the, in modern history is is not representative and fails to consider the the details of what he attempted to do. And ultimately, he if you read uh, about his his life story, uh, by written by himself and also by his people who hated him, it's clear that uh, people had a really hard time finding anything bad to really to say anything really bad about him. And um, He's, as I said, his kind of, it seems that one of his main principles that he attempted to spread around was the idea of compassion and mercy. And he extended mercy and compassion repeatedly uh, to his enemies, even over and over again, until certain people showed that they were just not trustworthy at all. They weren't even willing to kind of like uh, agree to a reasonable bargain between Rome and, let's say, some Gaulish tribe. If, if, if those that did not even see sense and agree to something that was mutually beneficial, but still wanted to attack the Romans, then they were slaughtered. But are you going to judge that? I don't know. It's not for me to judge or not, but I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. But the main point being that the modern portrayal of Caesar is completely false, and you need to read some stuff about what he actually did and what his ideology was uh, to understand the truth. Anyway, that's just that one topic uh, about Caesar. Um, yeah. So, Muslim hordes are coming to get us. Um, Again, like they did last time. Yeah, like they did last time in our fantasy. In the world inside our heads, as opposed to in the actual world. Another good book I'm reading at the moment is by John Hobson. He's an English academic. The title is The Euroconcentric Conception of World Politics. I know that's a mouthful, but... Um, He's basically going through all or a lot of the big names um, in philosophy and political theory, from mainly from the English-speaking world. So that could be that could be people in the twentieth century, including certain characters like Brzezinski and Kissinger. 
then he goes all the way back to Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, Adam Smith, um, Karl Marx, and so on and so forth. And he, he's just completely taking the rug out from under these guys by exposing their fundamental bias in everything they wrote and therefore all of the, the theoretical foundations for uh, Western European slash American beliefs about the world and, and how it works. Uh, I'll give you one example. Karl Marx's theory of history is fundamental to the whole basis of his um, progression from industrialized society to communism to the utopian socialism. Um, it's completely wrong, completely and utterly wrong. So, for example, for Karl Marx's entire theory to be correct, um, banking and use of finance and industrialization need to originate in European societies and nowhere else. They, they cannot have existed anywhere else. It's not so much that he, that Marx himself posited this to be true, but Marx was simply ignorant of the fact that banking and finance, you know, the very uh, sophisticated systems of trade, basically, it pre-existed while Europe was languishing in this black hole. It only came back into Europe via the Italians because they got it from the Middle East, which for a thousand years prior to this had banking, complex forms of banking in many cases. Um, and it's, 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 it's such a, it's a simple concept, but I, I think, I think Joe summed it up earlier. Um, I don't know what more I can say than that. The last 400 years of history is, is basically all there is to it. There's no, there's no universal basis. Um, There's no, yeah, everything we think we know about the world is so completely wrong because all of, all of the theory-making, all of the um, philosophies, um, the beliefs that, that Europe has, is that the West is the best and always has been the best, is, is, is such a short-lived reality because... Um, China, for example, is 5,000 years old. It's come and gone in various forms over that spread of time. But do you think they look back at the period from 700 or so to 1400 as the Middle Ages? Middle Age in reference to what? For them, that's relatively recent history. You see what I'm getting at? Middle Ages is a Eurocentric term because we white Western Europeans have emerged from a black hole of time relatively recently. And all of our theories about how the world works, economics, political theory, um, philosophies are very narrow. There, there is no universal, very little universal basis to their claims. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Adam Smith, for example, the wealth of nations, how wealth is created, um, forms the backbone of economic, classical, liberal economic theory and how trade happens, he wouldn't have had the first... Well, he would have had some idea, 
but he, he the system he was reading the information he was picking up in order to come up with his theories was based on a particular British or European way of doing it in his time. It was it was unique. He was like he's like in a goldfish bowl. He can't see all of the other contemporary systems around in his own time, and then prior to the British Empire becoming the British Empire, and so. Uh, It strikes me as such a waste, you know, that all this intellectual talent in some cases, but largely also schizoidal nonsense, has taken up so much of our headspace for so long when reality has been right next to us saying, hello, don't you want to look at me and see how things actually work? <laughs> you know? Well, but people prefer projection, you know, uh, and uh, an egocentric View of history. Just for uh, Shawnee Bond on the on the chat, the name of that book was Euro the Eurocentric conception of world politics. Um, the problem is that yeah, people want to think very highly of themselves. It's human nature want to think very highly of themselves, and that extends to their history and their ideas of themselves as a people, and that has um, informed all of the uh, much of the writing of of history. Uh, particularly in the in the Western world, and it's uh, it's largely a fabrication. You know, I mean, you could probably say that from a civilizational point of view, um, the West, that is, you know, Europe, Western Europe in particular, and America, are like the new, are like kind of like the nouveau riche in in the economic or in the social classes. You know, it's like you you, you take some people from some lower class, quote unquote, people, uh, and uh, they win the lottery or something. And suddenly uh, you have these you know, uneducated, um, uncouth uh, kinds of people with very bad manners, let's say, uh, who suddenly live in a big mansion with gold toilets mm. and, uh, and servants and stuff. <clears throat> but they don't wear, wear, that, uh, wear that particular, um, uh, what's the pair, I don't know, trousers, shirt, whatever item of clothing that, that phrase uh, involves. They don't wear it very well. Um, because that's not who they are. Effectively, They're, they have the air. They have the, they put on airs and graces, but it's not who they are. Um, and Western civilization, you know, has this uh, supposedly vaunted, glorious history going back two thousand years, but it's all a lie. It doesn't. It's not actually true. They're they're the nouveau, the nouveau civilized, effectively, and um, they they don't have. It's not in particularly in, in terms of the the people who are the leaders of of Western civilization. Um, and unfortunately, they're all psych psychopaths. They don't uh, really wear this. Uh, they, they don't carry off this um, this history, this vaunted and, and um, um, you know highfalutin history very well because they say all the right words: freedom, democracy, and you know Western civilization and spreading it around the world. But what they do is they go around the world uh, killing people because they're a bunch of savages behind it all. So it's like having a bunch of savages, dressing them up in finery and clothes and putting them in a nice mansion and expecting them to act as if they are actually civilized when they're not. And they don't. And if you look into their history, you say, hang on a minute, these people posing as lords and ladies uh, two weeks ago, they were rolling around in the gutter, you know, uh, drunk. Um, and that's kind of what you could say, that's more or less what we're saying about Western civilization. Uh, Two weeks ago, historically speaking, I 
you know, five or six hundred years ago, Western civilization was rolling around in the gutter, drunk. Uh, and that's their history. Um, so I'm sorry to burst that bubble for you there. <laughs> not necessarily, we're not, we're not holding up any other civilization as being any, any, necessarily any better, but let's put it this way, none of them are any wor- are, none of them are certainly any worse. And in fact, probably most of the rest of them are better because, well, when it comes down to it, from a moral point of view, the uh, the colonized and the oppressed are morally better than the oppressor. So, at least from that moral standpoint, you know, um, doesn't mean they're better people necessarily. But and you you could say, of course, one way that uh, colonizers justify their colonization and their their abuse of other people around the world is to say, uh, well, if the shoe was on the other foot, they'd be doing exactly the same thing to us. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can't, that, that's a bit of a uh, it's a yeah. kind of circular circular reasoning. There. Well, history shows that to be untrue. This this is the thing you see. Hegemony is what I'm suggesting is hegemony, the quest for power and more power and more power until it's a global quest, is a quite a modern thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, so they they don't have that like to stand on. Well, if we weren't doing it now, it would be anarchy because anyone else then could come in. The Russians could do it, or the Chinese. You yeah, know? Uh, that doesn't follow. From from the beginning until today, it's they even even they've intuited that they needed some grand reason for it, and it's always been mm-hmm. some sort of civilizing mission. Yeah, um, obviously with the Crusades, it was to convert the infidels to Christianity. Well, Today it's freedom and democracy, and there were many variants in between. Yeah, we've talked about this in previous shows where it gets into human psychology, which is the whole system one and system two thing. We have this unconscious, unconscious drive uh, where you want something, uh, some base need, you want some base need fulfilled, but you, you know, you're you not wired the w- that way where you just blurt it out and say, I want your house, I want you. I want what you have. I want your, you know, dinner. Give it to me now. Uh, people don't say that. You know, it's, it's, there's a, there seems to be a filter there that's it's good for, you know, polite conversation as well. Uh, that, that there is that filter. But that filter means that people come up with all sorts of um, narratives, fancy, fanciful narratives to justify rather base uh, motivations. And, uh, of course, that's why we have freedom and democracy and civilizing the world and civilizing the savage, these people. You know, and you, people are very good at convincing themselves uh, of, of what they want to be true, uh, being true. Uh, when they lie to themselves, they, they believe it. Yeah, what I think is, is true, you know. But they don't know themselves. They don't know that what's really motivating them is an unconscious drive to, you know. And for most ordinary human beings, that the, those things aren't too aren't too negative, they're not too bad, they're not something that's going to cause serious problems. They need to be kept in check, but they're not too too, too serious in a negative kind of way. But the problem is when you have psychopaths in positions of power who have uh, an inner nature that is basically just uh, destruction and control and domination of others. That's what they want. Fundamentally, that's their inner inner unconscious drive. That's what they want and need and feel the need for that all the time. Ordinary human beings, you know, can have that to a certain extent, but also ordinary human beings want kind of companionship and, uh, you know, sharing and connection with other people and all sorts of positive things as well, and probably more so than anything else. So uh, the, that's the problem. The problem is uh, 
the narratives that these people spin. The narratives in general that human beings spin to themselves is a problem, but it's a really serious problem when you have psychopaths who are spinning narratives uh, to cover up base drives that are fundamentally destructive and domineering of others. That's all they want. They don't have any good side to them, effectively. So, um, yeah. I'd love to know what it was that kicked in um, in, in Europeans. I mean, the, the, it's, it seems that the, the, the Black Death, in the various forms that it comes, the Justinian plague at the end of the Roman era, I'm pretty sure there was a global plague too at the end of the Bronze era before that, then the Black Death that wiped out up to half of Western Europe in the 14th century. What I wonder if it plays some kind of mediating role in history, because it seems to there seems to be some genetic selection or something like that, such that there's a new program that plays. Mm-hmm. I'm speculating here because we don't have enough of an historical pattern of eras to be able to compare them, line them up one to the other. But um, who knows? There's some. Well, I think the thing that brought that has brought our civilization and global the global society and global civilization to the the edge of the abyss on which it now stands uh, that has really pushed it to that extreme and looks like it's going to make any kind of future on this planet untenable in the absence of any major changes. Um, the thing that made all the difference, I think, is technology. Uh, and it's no coincidence that we say that the history, when we say that the history of Western civilization is only 400 years old or so, uh, it's, no, it's no coincidence that for most of those 400 years you had effectively uh, the Industrial Revolution and the development of technology that allowed, that massively facilitated uh, the ability for people so inclined to create and establish uh, a global empire, effectively, like the British and the Americans. Um, That's what made it possible for them to really assert themselves around the world and to uh, dig their claws into the entire planet. Because, I mean, once you have Industrial Revolution, you have, you know, uh, weapons development, uh, much better ships, faster engines, all that kind of stuff to get around the world. You have planes, and then suddenly you have nuclear weapons, and you have uh, nuclear weapons, and you have um, you know air travel, all that yeah. kind of stuff. I mean, that's suddenly the world shrinks before your eyes, and if you're a, if you're a global hegemon, well, right there, the world is is now really something that you can uh, control and dominate very easily. You can get from one side to the other in a few short hours, and um, and, and, and it's bad, bad juju, you know, and it's get, uh, once that power is available to these kinds of people, well, you know that you've reached the, you're getting close to the, to, to the climax of this uh, particular go-around. Yeah. Um, I'm still left wondering the what comes first, the industriousness or the technology, because the Chinese had gunpowder and they were using guns a long time before Europeans got their hands on them they also had the biggest and the best ships yeah um, they were also she makes the case this this author that China already had pretty advanced industrial revolution in the previous era mm. 
it regressed somewhat before it picked up again. But I, yeah, but, I, I know what you mean. The, the, no, but the, 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 the industrial revolution we know of wasn't just a case of Europe catching up or anything like that. It did explode in some kind of exponential fashion. No, I mean, the last two, 300, 200 years have been... Well, like, there's, there's two points. Out. One is the Industrial Revolution, and the other one is, I said, in the hands of those kinds of people. Yeah. That's the key factor. Okay. Industrial Revolution isn't a problem in itself. Uh, technology yeah. isn't a problem. It's when people uh, with that unconscious drive to dominate and destroy other people are, uh, dominate or... or, or, or exist in large numbers in positions of power in, yeah. con- in, in the context of, a, of an industrialized, scientific, high-tech society, then you've got a major problem. Yeah, because they perpetuate uh, the scientific quest to develop ever more efficient ways of killing people right. rather than developing civilization. Which is what they want, yeah. Which is why today, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is nuts, but this there you go, after 200 years or more of... Um, more probably of being a colony in one way or another of first Germany, then France, and Russia, which the country we call Rwanda today is only now getting highways. Now, because the Chinese came in and said, oh, okay, we build you highways. We, you give us this and this and we make you highways. <laughs> I mean, the what happened there? You were supposed to be the colonizers and you were there to civilize and you what just couldn't be asked to build the infrastructure? It's not just Rwanda, it's Kenya, it's, uh, it's all over Africa. Yeah, 300 years of British and French and Dutch uh, and Portuguese uh, colonization and, yeah, at the end of the... There's nothing to show for In it. the 21st century, they have nothing. Nothing to show but war and death and poverty and... Famine, and yeah. The dark continent, I mean, you look at Africa but by night, there's no lights, there's nothing. In a few pockets, but, I mean, they just wasted that, that continent, wasted it. They kept control of it and exploited it, uh, have done for the past 300 years, and and today there was a, there was a Alu, uh, Alahu Snackbar uh, event in, ah, Snickers. On, on, the Ivory, on the Ivory Coast. Um in uh, I suppose a western resort in, uh, on the coast of the Ivory Coast. Uh, a few gunmen, allegedly, uh, I didn't see much about it, but there was, in the report that I, I saw, well, several people have been killed, five people killed, mainly um, frequented by westerners, which is ridiculous. What are people doing there anyway? Um, you know, sunbathing on the beach in, in an impoverished country that, for most of them, is their government that is... Uh, the one that's been impoverishing them. Anyway, um, there's one in the report on, on this attack, on this resort, there was one line where, where cited someone as saying that uh, someone heard one of the gunmen shouting, Allah Akbar. And, um, of course, they had to get that in there, you know. So now, you know. And the know. tourist said, right this way, the bars at, up there from the beach. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I said, no, no, you don't understand. Snack bar. So, um, I've come for the Snickers. Uh, so, he was there to establish the Islamic Caliphate in the Ivory Coast. Well, that's a perfect uh, breeding ground for that kind of thing now when, right. when, it's being run by, when it's being run by Western intelligence agencies. I mean, they've, like, like we just said, they've been, they have uh, been meddling and tormenting those countries for, for 300 years. So, 
when your agenda now is to spread the the fear of the new Islamic caliphate coming to take over Western world and uh, well then you know yeah I mean you can th- do the odd do the odd uh, terror attack down there you know just yeah. to remind everybody of course what they're really trying to stave off and thwart is uh, the Chinese threat as they see it yeah because the Chinese are pushing in pushing in in a big way I mean Africa. I read a report where something like 15 African countries um, have introduced uh, Mandarin Chinese on primary school curriculums. Mm. I mean, they're thinking, okay, this is the way it's going to be from here on out. The West sees this, and uh, uh, this is what, of course, the whole war on terror is really about. It's a symptomatic desperation of Losing the status quo, mm-hmm. losing control over the milk, the milk, the cash cows, uh, effectively free resources from places like Africa. Yep. Anything else in the news today we want to touch on? Um, well, things are proceeding wonderfully in the U.S., where any day now we'll have a fascist in power. That's good news for the rest of the world, in a sense, because it means the end is very much nigh. <laughs> At least uh, it's hard to imagine the U.S. lasting much longer once Trump gets in power. And I don't mean to suggest that Trump has any particular, particularly nefarious plans, but I w- if you notice that a character like that, trouble seems to follow him, you know, Hysteria, violence, um, follows him like a bad smell. You know, it's just, and people are noticing. I think even in the mainstream, but people are saying this this guy is trouble. So, at a recent event, he was he had an event cancelled in Chicago at the university there because things were pretty rough in the crowd, uh, to say the least. But then he just before he spoke in St. Louis. There's a video online where he's he's speaking, I think, on the on the runway. He's just landed, and he's got his Trump Force One jetliner in the background. He's flying around in a jet that has Trump emblazoned on the side. Anyway, that's in the background, and apparently you don't see it clearly, but someone tried to get up on the podium, and there's a kerfuffle. Trump uh, spins around quickly, and then there's like six... Secret Service agents pile up on Trump, and then the crowd goes wild. Anyway, they're saying today, breaking news from CNN, that this guy who attempted to attack, in quotes, Trump, was a self-described ISIS terror group militant, who also happened to be a registered Democrat and a supporter of Bernie Sanders, and whose mother works for a Democrat mayor in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, and he works at the, his name is Thomas DiMassimo, and he works at the Wright State University in Ohio. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and they've got a, a tweet from this this guy on Twitter, supposedly said something like, "He, oh, I intend to go to this Trump rally to spit on their king. So the Trump... Uh, Trump supporters are playing this up from all angles. So they basically have a 
ISIS, well, they can play this any which way they want. Akami, ISIS, black, I don't think he's black, but I think we're going to see a lot more of this. Someone, I mean, clearly, no, not clearly, but what suggests to me about that attack, or at least the explanation, the narrative they're spinning about it, is that um, Trump's getting help from very high up because that's the kind of thing that will feed back into the increased hysteria and possibly support for Trump among the population in the U.S., um, there's no doubt in my mind anymore. The, the notion in, in by certain and certain alternative media circles, yeah, right, that Trump is the anti-establishment guy and anti-Zionist and free of Jewish money, blah blah blah. Yeah, I don't think it's that simple. There's no way he's getting all this airtime, of course, and he's getting these kind of political gimmicks well, th- along that, the way. That ISIS business, so that that uh, that's a hoax, basically. I mean, I mean, it's it's not true that that, that this guy who well, he tried to who tried to jump up on the stage at the Trump rally was an ISIS guy. This was put out there by Trump himself. Oh, uh, possibly. it's a comment that he made uh, himself. Uh, yeah, they looked into him and they found that he was related to ISIS, or whatever. But apparently, someone had uploaded a video of this of this guy who was at another protest previous in the year, and they had doctored the video and put an ISIS flag on it. And this was so. This was Trump's intelligence, basically, from his own supporters or his own kind ah. of team, had found a video of this guy that someone had deliberately doctored to make it look like he was ISIS. So this is now being put out there. I mean, it's just it's it's a farce, obviously. I mean, when you can just like you know throw in the ISIS thing there and have have it gain traction. Um, so I mean, it's just there's it, it's almost like it doesn't. Um, there's nothing to say about that. It's just farcical. It's complete and utter farce, you know. And as far as Trump being. Uh, a problem in terms of him having any nefarious agendas. Uh, I think the worst, the, the biggest problem with Trump is that he's an idiot and that he doesn't have any agenda at all. He just makes up shit as he goes so along. So anyone can use him. Well, what's worse? Their thing through him. Yeah, well, or, or, I mean, if you put a, if you put an idiot in the present in the presidency of the White House, is that that's almost as bad as having someone in there who has a nefarious agenda? Uh, it's like George Bush, you know, it's a, another version of George Bush, effectively, and. Uh, it's just not good uh, in any shape or form. But then there's nothing good about American politics at all, obviously. I mean, um, what can you say at this stage? It's just a, it is just one large joke uh, and any attempt. I mean, I, I just resist or refuse any attempts to actually analyze the situation at all because it's so self-evidently ridiculous and farcical. It's like, you know, if, if you, basically if you put... Uh, troop of clowns up and said that they, they were the uh, the presidential candidates and had them all tell jokes and you know toot their horns and squirt water from flowers and stuff and wear big shoes and red noses and funny hair and tell jokes to each other and throw pies in each other's faces and then ask me to comment on that from a political political perspective I'm, I'm gonna look at you like you're crazy I'm gonna look, what do you mean they're clowns they're throwing pies in each other's faces What's there to say? No, no, but we should have a serious analysis of this. No, they're, they're, it's pie-throwing. They're obviously not serious. None of them are serious, with the exception of one or two, but who don't really get much airtime. Bernie Sanders maybe is half, uh, is at least putting on a good show of being serious. The rest of them aren't serious, so why would you actually discuss them at all? Discuss, 
discuss discuss Donald Trump from the perspective of the guy's a floppy headed douchebag, you know, if I can use that term. And you know, what more is there to say about him? And the other guys are a bunch of just they're 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 idiots. They're they're, they're fools. They're they're tools. They're complete other tools. You know. Mm. I mean, it'd be, the equivalent for me would be like putting is is if in in the UK, for example, you put up members of the royal family. Well, the extended royal family, and have them and pretend that they're all the rulers of the UK, that they all have some power to rule and actually, you know, rule in the UK, and then discuss the merits of each one. I would say, well, I could, but it would be completely a completely hollow exercise because everybody knows that they don't really have any power. I could discuss what colour dresses the Queen is going to wear compared to her, you know, her sister or, or her, you know, one other member of her family. And which one would influence public opinion more, the purple one or the pink one? But that's about it. I'm not going to discuss what impact they might have on policy or how or the running of the country or the effect they might have on the country or what they could do for the country because everybody knows the royal family are simply titular, symbolic heads in the UK. They don't have any power. The same applies to all of the presidential candidates. There's no point in talking about what any of them could or could not do because they do not and have not run the country. The president has not run the country in any significant way in the U.S. for uh, for 50 years since JFK. So talk to me about clowns instead. And that's all we have to say about the war in Vietnam. Yeah. A very bulimic drawing of butter. Uh, Any more questions from our... Chatterers. Not much going on. Um, yeah, they're all having a good time. But I think uh, we're going to call it quits for tonight for this show. I think we've covered our topic, topic pretty well, as we were, as was our remit. Um, so, yeah, we will be back next week with another show. Um, don't forget to tune in to the Health and Wellness Show on Fridays and the Truth Perspective on Saturdays. Uh, thanks to our chatters and our listeners and we will, yeah, we'll see you next week and we hope you join us then. Yeah. All right. Until next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.